Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, big day for downtown Hamilton and its entertainment venues. The We Charity scandal continues. And new rules governing pipelines and climate change could stall a COVID-19 recovery. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I'm on the golf course right now playing some golf with my mom. But I gotta keep my voice down. She's putting. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. What? What? What the heck was that? That's not an intro. That's a... Uh, Curtis is on the second green right now. His mother is putting, and he cannot do his intro today. Man, so, you know, I thought he would at least go out to a garden shed somewhere and scream and yell the way he normally does. But no, he had already started his round, and... He decided that was the only way he could do it and didn't want to scrap it. So there you have it. Uh, maybe good for a Monday, but a Friday? You know, I was kind of expecting more. All right. Too much pressure on the kid. Anyway, uh, uh, as we were talking yesterday, very exciting time in Hamilton. Despite what we'll be going through with this pandemic, uh, this is really good news. A winner has been selected in the bid for the downtown entertainment venues. We talked to former mayor of Hamilton, Larry DeAnne, about this yesterday. Uh, and Hupeg, which includes groups like the Mercani Group, Precinct, and Leuna, among others, uh, were selected to be the winner. And to talk more about all of this, Jasper uh, Kajaski is with us, coordinates uh, the Precinct Group and director of the Arena. Uh, renovation project and is with us now jasper thanks for the time hope you're doing well sorry we're a little distracted here as we get the show off uh thanks for joining us today well thank you very much scott uh obviously a pretty exciting day in hamilton uh tell us about this plan first well uh, you know it's been a quite a journey as you know and uh you know going all the way back to the days you know when 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 heck was in place and you know it's sort of a Ironic in terms of certainly for me looking back as I sat on that board in the 1990s mm. and to see it progress to the point where significant private sector interest in, in the entertainment venues has brought us to the end of this part of the competitive process has, has certainly, I think, been uh, somewhat historic and I hope will be good news for Hamilton, especially during a time when I think about all the other tough things that are going on, certainly mm. with the pandemic and everything else. So I hope that uh, in the middle of some tough stuff, this will be seen as a good news story. So, again, we remember there was two prominent plans here that went uh, before council, and they voted for this one uh, unanimously, I believe, with one abstaining, uh, which is certainly uh, looks great on you. Tell us about the plan, because some are having trouble remembering which one is which and which is others. Uh, describe the features, the top features of your plan. Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I do want to say, though, and I think it's very important that when you have significant local-based businesses like our competitor in, in this process, you know, uh, the Vancor group, I really think they deserve enormous kudos. And even though we may have been selected, uh, we're all going to be partners going forward in the sense that our, that these facilities are all next to each other. And Vancor has some of the most important assets in the downtown. So whether they're directly involved in the renovation of a building or whether or not their hotel is going to complement the, a new, you know, the renovated convention center, I just think it's really important that the, that the, uh, that the community recognize that there were two strong, 
proponents who came forward and both, I think, deserve respect and deserve admiration for what for what was done. So I think, number one, I think that is very important to point out. And while a number of the assets, and there's a lot of interrelation between the things, a, a huge part of this at the outset is the proposed renovation of the existing Coliseum. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk. I know it's gotten a lot of attention in terms of the uh, arena and what would happen with it. And we're talking about a project here that will be a very significant uh, transformation of the existing Coliseum in a way that we hope, one, will serve the people of Hamilton and all the visitors who come, but, um, you know, very importantly, be a, a place where the where we can convince and, and have, you know, as part of the, the discussions, the, you know, the, the Hamilton Bulldogs as, uh, as a place where they would be proud to, to call home for, for, for generations to come. And speaking of the Bulldogs, again, I'm, I'm sure you can't speak for them. Will they be happy with this? Well, we're going to certainly do our best to make sure they are. And when you look at the the opportunities, the terms of the good solid bones that that building has, going all the way back to what we were able to determine during 2015 and 2016 arena renovation study, which was prepared by Brisbane Brook Bainan, the architects who designed the Air Canada Centre, now Scotiabank Arena, did the massive transformation of Madison Square Garden in New York, also did a great project with Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. And uh, we, we think that when the, the plans for the renovated arena are, are more uh, known in detail and people see what the opportunities are there to, to bring the arena to life, to strip it back, especially in its lower bowl to its concrete shell and then reconfigure it, there's a lot of space in that building people don't even know about at uh, street level, which is not even accessible to the public, which is going to become new concourse space, um, new amenities, food and beverage operations, all kinds of activation at street level, especially on York Boulevard. I think that not only the bull, certainly obviously it's very important that, that this meet the Bulldogs requirements and, um, and Michael and his team at the Bulldogs are, are very well acquainted with the architects at BBB, with the architects there. And we're very excited that uh, working together, we're going to be able to make this work for, for Mr. Andelauer. Okay, so that's uh, First Ontario Centre. What about Convention Centre? Well, you know, as, as was announced today, the, you know, the announcement is about a renovation of the existing building. We have put forward a plan which we think will We'll, we'll do good things for, for the space as it currently exists. And we're also going to be working with the art gallery with regards to uh, their future needs. So there'll be a lot more details coming out with regards to the convention plan. The arena plan is a, is a more, it was sort of more immediate in the sense of uh, being a, a priority to get that done now because of the fact that there are issues in the building. And, and, and Michael has been very clear about what those have been, especially as they relate to his organization. So there will be changes uh, throughout the entire Commonwealth Square, Civic Square area, that, that site that sits between King and Main Street in front of City Hall, and there will be more details coming on that as, as the plans roll out. So obviously this in a series of phases, the first one being First Ontario Centre, that is the top priority at this point. Certainly that's the most immediate need in terms of a building that has to be addressed because there, there are concerns that Michael has raised and they're, they're completely consistent and, and appropriate concerns. So that needs to be done. In terms of, say, for the convention center, it is an outdated building and it needs to, it needs to be changed. But one of our key partners, our lead partner, you know, one of our lead partners, Carmen's group, 
The Mercantes have been running that building now for coming up on uh, just past six years, have eliminated the subsidy that used to be attaching to that building when it was part of the HECFI uh, trio of publicly not just owned but managed buildings. And they've done a great job on it. Now, of course, one can only, you know, it's a tough situation in the middle of a pandemic. And they have, uh, they've really uh, hung in. And, and I think the McCandys deserve an enormous amount of credit for what they've been able to do in a tough circumstance there. But the building, uh, you know, any, the convention requirements for Hamilton have to be addressed. And we're going to address them as part of this plan moving forward. And, uh, but in terms of the, the management of that building versus, say, the management of, um, the the Coliseum, it's a little bit different. And the building that, that really needs the least amount of, of change is Hamilton Place Theatre. And mm. there hasn't been that much talk about that. Sometimes it's sort of the, the third of the three that, that doesn't get too much attention in these um, in these reviews. But that's part of this deal as well. We'll be taking over the operation and management of that building. And it needs a refresh, but it's still a beautiful theatre. It's appropriately sized. It has enormous, it's just great acoustics. And it's in the right location, so uh, we're pretty confident that with some activation and some other changes, we can we can do some good things there too. But the biggest challenges will be in the convention center, and of course with the arena. So, Jasper, just to clarify, this is one done and then the other, or is work going on simultaneously, oh, or will yeah. work go on simultaneously between the two? Yeah, no, no, no. It's all things are going on all through this process. It's not it's not staged in terms of we do the arena and then we'll get to something else. Right. They're all happening at the same time. And what other parts of this project do you see in the future? Well, uh, you know, one of the things, of course, is that when the private sector takes over uh, operations of buildings that have been uh, requiring subsidy in the past, and, and no one will, will ever say that, you know, the easiest way to make money is to run an, a big arena or to run a, a convention center, they rely on on ancillary services, and that's where uh, having towers, having hotels, having uh, uh, residential units, residential development, rental, condo as well. Rental, of course, is, is very important in Hamilton. We have a, a significant shortage there. Workforce housing is something that we're taking very seriously as a, as a part of these proposals. So the city is, is no longer going to have any capital requirements. They're making no capital contribution into these uh, significant renovations, but they are, you know, coming to the table with regards to uh, provision of some land and uh, some some property tax abatement, which will give incentive to the projects that allow for us to do uh, commercial projects that are that offset the investments that we make into the arena. So there's going to be hopefully as people start to see the rollout of these plants, they're going to be excited about. The, uh, the other developments as we create a much more vibrant and exciting downtown core. People, you know, Hamilton's experienced an enormous renaissance. And people want to live, work, and play in urban Hamilton. And with uh, changes in transit and other exciting projects that, uh, that are online, we think that when you come back in two years, then three years, five years, and then imagine ten years out, uh, I, I think a lot of people are going to say that the downtown uh, is, a, is, a, is a completely revitalized place uh, that both celebrates its history and embraces its future. And I think that hopefully this plan will be a, a, a major part of that catalyst.
Um, it, it wasn't that long ago when many thought that nobody uh, or there were very few uh, private uh, investors that were willing to take over uh, a project such as this. Where is the return for investors? Obviously, for the city, it takes uh, the operating and, and costs and such out of their hands. They still own the properties, uh, of course. But what's the, where's the return for the investors here? A lot of it does come, first of all, from a, a much more... Uh, we think private sector-driven efficiencies that will happen with the arena convention center as well as the theater. Also, as you as you renovate them, they become a more attractive place for, for events to come to, and the events make more money because your food and beverage and your ancillary services and other things are, are kicking in dollars that otherwise were never being uh, created. Things like microbreweries and food lounges and and bunker suites and new private suites and, and uh, party decks and all kinds of different areas where people are, are, are congregating or spending money that in the current building you can't generate those kind of revenues because the, uh, the infrastructure isn't in place. The space is there for it, but, the, but it's not built out in a way that's going to be that profitable. And then on top of that, when you talk about highest and best use developments, when you're looking at high rises, when you're looking at condominium, when you're looking at rentals, these are real estate developments that uh, are going to, in our view, be be profitable to the investors who are getting access to those projects in part because of the deal with the city, because of the investments that we're making in the entertainment venues. So the city is not investing a capital, but they are coming to the table and that's what this deal is about in terms of providing opportunities for us to make money but that money also makes money for the city because when you're creating new property taxes on developments that don't otherwise exist but for these developments we get some we obviously get benefit out of that and the city gets benefit out of that so it's a win-win across the board so Jasper how and you mentioned earlier we we're in the middle of a pandemic here how will this affect how will the pandemic affect this project moving forward and it's a new reality it, it post covid-19 is a different world could that would that or perhaps could it see changes in the initial design to to suit this well, new world you know we, that's a really good question in the sense that i mean we're we're all we're all skating on ice that that hasn't been skated on before so you have to recognize that it is a different dynamic but at the same time we're banking on the fact that that people are going to want to congregate again that this isn't permanent that you know at some point you know we're not saying it's going to be next week and we're not even going to say it's, it's the end of the calendar year but right now they're playing in empty stadiums whether it's baseball or you know european football or the other sports but at some point we're banking on the fact that the world is going to return to some degree of normalcy and that we're in an opportunity to prepare for that and to be in a position to be part of a, a post-pandemic recovery project that is going to provide great new facilities and updated facilities for the people of this uh, city and region, and that they're going to be used. And we also believe that no matter what happens coming out of the pandemic, that people are going to want to live in a city like Hamilton, that this is going to be an attractive place for people to live, work, and play. And we want to be part of, you know, providing uh, places for them to do that and to be able to, you know, from a financial perspective, do well at that. So uh, there is a certain uh, betting on on, uh, on a recovery that is going to, you know, see people spending time together again. And again, it's going to take a while to get out of this, but we're confident. And I think hopefully most people are confident that, uh, that you know, we're not going to be 
uh, distancing from each other forever. And uh, we have to plan for what the world's going to look like, not just in terms of how to get there, but once we do reach that point. Only got about 30 seconds uh, left here, Jasper. Uh, what is next? What happens next? When will we start to see more of this? Well, certainly, you know, we look forward to our first master agreement negotiating session with the city, which I suspect is probably going to happen early next week. We had a very uh, intense 120-day negotiating period with the city. And then after June 10th, that went a little bit quiet as the city had its final proposals to review. And now they've done that and voted on it. And now it's back to work. And it's to get ready for construction schedules and renovation schedules. And we said we want to be, uh, the arena is going to be under underway in 2021. We have to get ready to do that work, and we're just going to put our heads down uh, hmm. and start into that. Jasper, Kubja, uh, Jasper Kujavsky has been with us, uh, coordinates the precinct group, and, of course, the winning bid, Hugh Pegg, uh, part of the Marcanti group, Leona, among others. A very, very exciting time in the city as they relaunch the project, launch the project uh, to start with First Ontario Centre. Jasper, exciting times. Congratulations. Be well. Thank you very much. You too, Scott. Real pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The We Charity scandal continues uh, this week. Uh, Minister uh, Chagger says that she was not directed by the Prime Minister's office in suggesting that the We Charity run the grant program. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Cheryl Collier is with us, Associate Professor, Political Science, University of Windsor, and is with us now. Cheryl, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks, Scott Hun. Hope you are as well. So, Cheryl, uh, the uh, minister has said that she was not directly instructed by the Prime Minister's office to suggest the We Charity. Does that change things? Um, well, I, from what I understand, her testimony was a bit um, not, not as forthcoming as, as uh, maybe that, that headline seems to suggest. Uh, so she, she was a little bit lawyerly, I suppose, in her language, uh, saying that she personally did not have any discussion with the PMO, right. but whether or not people in her office did and whether or not we would believe that something of this magnitude would happen without the PMO uh, knowing about it and that she had the sole authority to make that decision is another kind of probably a little bit of a stretch. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know if we know exactly uh, who it was that actually uh, came forward with, uh, with this idea in the first place. We didn't, we didn't really learn those answers yesterday. Anything stand out in this first day yesterday? Well, I think uh, what was really interesting was uh, when uh, Rachel Wernick, uh, who's the Senior Deputy Minister for uh, Employment and Social Development Canada, who, who was the one that uh, uh, essentially was on uh, uh, testifying to say that she did not, uh, she was the one that suggested the We Charity. Um, she, uh, when, during her testimony yesterday, actually mentioned that uh, that uh, we had actually put a proposal forward earlier that was a little similar to this one. Not exactly, but it, it was a similar volunteer uh, pandemic-related program. Uh, so it, it's something that had come up before this one was announced. And then uh, the day that uh, the Prime Minister announced this, uh, that this was going out potentially for ten tender. Uh, he, uh, they, uh, the We Charity, uh, and uh, particularly uh, uh, Craig Kilberger, who's the co-founder of We, uh, actually sent a proposal that same day to uh, to Wernick uh, for consideration. That basically was a tweaking the earlier proposal to fit the proposal from the uh, that the Liberals had. Uh, had uh, you know just announced so the timing of this is quite quick it's uh, it 
seems to suggest somebody had some inside track on this. Uh, we don't know this for sure. This hasn't been confirmed, but uh, it definitely doesn't look good. Uh, the We Charity, a lot have supported that from various uh, political stripes. Uh, but now as we dig more into them, how is their reputation uh, in all of this? I, I think it's taken a hit. Uh, you know, the We Charity has been around for a while. The Cube. Kielbergers have been, uh, uh, you know, well-known in, in Canada. They, they, we used to be uh, Save the Children, uh, or sorry, Free the Children, uh, and then they, they uh, changed their name and focus a little bit more, mostly an international uh, aid organization involving youth uh, across Canada doing, uh, you know, charity work. Um, it has uh, branched, I think, more into the service uh, and leadership role uh, of, of developing uh, youth leadership uh, domestically. And we just, re- uh, it was just announced that we is, is undergoing a review of their, their operations. Um, and I think this is being done, uh, you know, to kind of counter some of this negative publicity that, that the We Charity is, is now receiving uh, and, you know, as a as blowback from this scandal. Um, and they're, they basically said they're going to focus more internationally than domestically. And, uh, and that's probably a wise move. Uh, it's maybe more close to their roots. And it will take a little bit of that, that kind of focus away from what they're doing in Canada and things that they're doing that, that may align or not with the, uh, the sitting Liberal government. So from the government's perspective, is this the path of least resistance? Uh, we was there. They were familiar with it. It was uh, it, it could fit. Is this laziness, uh, lack of foresight or is this special interest? Is this conflict of interest? You know, it's interesting. We don't know exactly, uh, you know, whether or not it's it's the latter, uh, the, the conflict of interest, special interest. It, clearly, there's a relationship there. Um, and clearly there was some sloppiness. Um, maybe this is what happens when you're in government for a while. For some people, they think the liberals just, you know, maybe don't think about these conflict issues. Uh, it, you know, as we know, uh, this is the third time that the prime minister is being investigated by our uh, ethics commissioner, uh, which is quite uh, extraordinary, to be honest. Uh, and uh, this is this kind of denotes a pattern, perhaps, that, uh, and I don't know if it's within the Liberal Party itself or if it's specifically this Prime Minister and his his uh, approach and his Cabinet's approach to government. But clearly, uh, you know, I think most people realize if your family's involved with an organization and that organization's up for a nearly billion-dollar contract, that might make sense for you to recuse yourself from the decision-making just just to, to remain on the upside of, of that decision-making process. Um, and the fact that both the Prime Minister and uh, subsequently learned that uh, the Finance Minister, Bill Morneau, who was also involved with this cabinet decision-making, also has uh, ties to WE. His uh, daughters have been involved with working with WE in the past. Uh, both of them should have recused, recused themselves. I think this is, even though it's probably going to take the Ethics Commissioner some time to, uh, to, to conduct the investigation, I think it should be somewhere around seven months or so for this to, to fully, uh, you know, see the light of day. Uh, I, I would be surprised if he doesn't find that they were in violation of ethics on this one. It, it seems to be something that was completely avoidable. Uh, and, uh, you know, some people are saying that it was, uh, you know, a scandal that, that, uh, that was really of the Liberal Party making. And, uh, you know, considering how high they are in the polls right now uh, with the COVID response and how, uh, you know, Canadians seem to have been uh, getting behind them, uh, they're in a minority government. It, it, it 
just quite baffling that they would uh, that would they would uh, kind of take this on. I, it, you you have to think there's some hubris involved in in this, uh, and uh, and just really sloppy, uh, you know, just on face of it. Uh, Christia Freeland, obviously a, uh, a very reputable politician, and, and a lot of people like her and, and are proud of the work that she's done, yesterday kind of gave a motherly apology for all of this. Does this do anything to her credibility? Um, you know, I think after a while it, it might, but uh, it probably she's distant enough from it that it, it, it's not directly going to blow back on, on uh, Minister Freeland. I, what about I, her know, apologizing for all of this, though? Yeah. It, it kind of, it, you know, all of a sudden you're thinking, well, my goodness, number one, should you have not red flagged this? Number two, yeah. aren't you sticking up for someone who has done something wrong for the third time? Yeah, and I think this is this is a conundrum that all the liberals find themselves in at the moment. They you, you either have to support the government or you have to step aside. So I suppose if Freeland's going to take the high road on this, then she would probably have to follow suit, a la uh, Josie Wilson Rabel did, and uh, and step aside or step away from cabinet uh, to say to show that she doesn't have cabinet confidence and confidence in the government. And I don't think that she sees that as the, the right path to take for her own career. Um, maybe she's weighing this and saying, you know, I'm, uh, you know, this was wrong. I'm going to apologize on behalf of the government, but we're going to forge on because, you know, that's the right thing to do. I, it, it'll be other people that, uh, and Canadians that will have to judge whether or not she, she should be punished for, for that decision. Um, I can understand why she would make that decision at this point in time. I think she's trying to weigh the, weigh the, the uh, impact on her specifically and, uh, and, and on the government, to be honest with you, and how much this is really going to impact them. If you look at the polls right now, it's, it, it hasn't really registered that much with Canadians, and maybe they're all thinking they're going to ride this out. Uh, how you you talked about this being the third time before the ethics commissioner? How does this compare to the others? Uh, is this more damaging, less damaging? Um, well, you, the fact that this money wasn't actually awarded, I think that is helpful, even though it was only not rewarded after we found out about it. But it it, uh, it if we had already seen the contract come out and we found out about it later. Uh, and, you know, the WE charity had benefited somehow from this arrangement. Um, I think it might have been a little bit uh, more uh, damaging. But if you, you compare it to uh, SNC-Lavelin uh, and, you know, the, the, the issue of, uh, of, of trying to impact your, your uh, justice minister and, and get her to sway a court uh, decision, uh, it's, it's, I wouldn't put it in the same... Uh, same ballpark as that one. I, I would have thought that one was, would be more damaging. Having said that, y- you have to wonder about the cumulative effect of all of this. Uh, you know, one time it happens, you think, okay, uh, it was early and that was the Egacon, uh, uh, vacation decision. Uh, the ethics commissioner found uh, that the, uh, Trudeau government should not have, have, have taken that gift. Uh, that, that was, you know, uh, that did violate, uh, the ethics, uh, uh, rules. Um, that one was uh, the first time. That was early. Uh, then you then you had SNC Lavelin. Then you had the uh, you know the ultimate. I think uh, payment for that was this minority government, but still formed government. Um, 
uh, you could even put the, uh, you know, the decision making around blackface that came out during the election in this. Uh, mm-hmm. That didn't really that that wasn't an ethics violation, but it does raise questions about judgment, I think, in Canadians' minds. And now you have the third one here on, uh, you know, uh, a chummy relationship, to say the least, uh, with a charity that uh, that seemed to get an inside track on a quite lucrative contract. So you you want to you wonder if if Canadians are are kind of starting to get tired of this. It's uh, it, we we won't know this until an election. Right now, though, we're not seeing it really resonate in the polls. And it you know it, it, I wouldn't I'm not surprised by that because it is the summer and of course we're in the middle of a pandemic. And if you think about it, the most obvious uh, party to take on uh, leadership of the country is the Conservatives, and they're in, uh, you know, in a leadership race right now that is mm-hmm. not really capturing a lot of people's attention, somewhat, uh, you know, also uh, due to this pandemic that we're in at the moment. So, uh, you know, you could see why people might think that the Liberals may be able to ride this one out. It's it's so unfortunate that, uh, that this, you know, it, for them anyways, that they couldn't... Uh, make the most of a good or you know of their good handling i would say uh of this uh of this tough situation uh with the pandemic uh you know specifically compared to our neighbors to the south uh but it's uh they are making it uh a little bit more um uh of a question mark i guess about whether or not uh, this is going to have a lasting impact. And uh, you can see why the opposition parties are all over this, because this is an opening here for them to uh, to to start to chip away a little bit at uh, at the popularity of the of the sitting government. Uh, will we see the prime minister testify? That's a good question. I would I, they, he has not he is he has acknowledged that that they have invited him to testify. He has been coy about it. I wouldn't think they would. So the reason, I, or that he would, uh, today actually I was listening to the committee, uh, um, uh, that the standing committee on uh, on uh, access to information, privacy, and ethics. They're they're hearing today, and the liberal uh, members on that committee that were speaking were talking about letting the ethics commissioner do her job or his job. Uh, sorry, uh, on uh, uh, you know moving forward with this. Uh, this investigation. And um, it's, uh, I think that might be the line that the Prime Minister takes as well, is that, you know, it's fine that the committee uh, wants to look into this, but it's usurping the role of the Ethics Commissioner, and we should let that uh, role, you know, play out. And I would probably think that's what the Prime Minister is going to say. But at the moment, um, the uh, he is he has not actually tipped his hat on that. Um, maybe that's tactical to to say that he's thinking through the the, the thought process on this. Uh, remember too that the um, the commission is uh, normally as it was during the SNC Lavalin uh, investigations when commissions were looking at standing committees and co- uh, uh, committees were looking at this. Uh, they were dominated by the Liberals because the Liberals were in majority uh, government, mm-hmm. but uh, that is not the case at the moment. They're in a minority, so the opposition members actually hold majority uh, uh, numbers on those committees. So it's harder for the government to kind of steer the questioning of the committee and to impact how that might, uh, you know, kind of uh, reflect on the Prime Minister if he had decided to testify. So I would think that he's probably going to take a pass, Um, but he has not said so yet. Uh, Take a pass, but then wait to the last minute to say that after everything else has rolled out. I would think so, yeah. 
Yeah. What? How do you think this is resonating with Canadians? You said obviously it's the summer. There's one strike, obviously, and the pandemic uh, beyond that. Uh, do you think this is resonating with Canadians, or as you mentioned, when an, an election eventually does roll around, there'll be a cumulative effect here? You know, it's it's hard to say because I'm one of those people that watches this stuff and is really interested yeah, in it myself. Me too. Yeah. Um, and, and you are as well, Scott. So I know, I know, and, and probably a lot of your listeners are as well. Um, I think it, uh, it it it's probably not resonating as much as uh, as the opposition parties would like, particularly considering we're in a minority situation, and and it's completely understandable. This is a little bit inside ball. Um, for a lot of people, uh, I doubt a lot of people are watching these committee hearings. Uh, you know, if people are watching the news, they may tune out after they hear about, you know, what's going on with the pandemic. Uh, and so I'd be surprised. And it is the summer. Uh, usually our attention to politics is not rife, uh, during the summertime. However, it just does give a little bit more fodder to the opposition parties uh, when an election does come around, um, and it may impact when the Liberals want to, you know, call an election. Uh, they are going to want to make that call at a time where they think they have the best chance of forming a majority government, and maybe, I, I, it, I'm not sure when how that's going to figure in, but it'll be interesting to see uh, this, you know, being the third time. This is, this is something that uh, that the opposition parties, are, I'm sure, are going to bring up during an election to say, look, this this government has just passed its its due date. It's time for change. Uh, whether or not, though, that that fully does resonate with Canadians, it, we're just going to have to wait and see. Cheryl Collier is with us, associate professor, political science, University of Windsor, talking about the We Charity scandal. Cheryl, thanks for the time and insight. As always, be well. Thank you. You as well, Scott, and all your listeners as well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. New rules in the government's strategic assessment on climate change says that proposals for new mines, power plants, pipelines, etc. must include plans that to have a zero emission by 2050 if they want approval. To talk more about all of this, Dan McTagg is with us, former Liberal MP, Canadians for Affordable Energy, and he is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me again. Good talk again, Scott. So, uh, first of all, uh, what does this mean? What does is this anything new? How significant is this? Well, significant in that the government basically has committed uh, to what it can't achieve, and that's first of all a reduction of thirty uh, percent of a third of our emissions going back uh, below two thousand five levels. So I think we've. Whether they like it or not, they can't meet that. No one can. We're seeing emissions rise. You know, saving except for the pandemic, economies increase. Uh, our economy is based on hydrocarbons. And none of that is bad. Prices of natural gas, cleaner produced oil, cleaner produced diesel, cleaner produced gasoline, all of these things. And we have carbon taxes on that. We have a federal government prepared to put in a very costly clean fuel standard. And on top of this now, I think they're recognizing that, hey, we're not going to meet the Paris uh, agreement that we foolishly signed on to um, because we've already done the great things that other countries didn't do that is conversion from coal to natural gas so we're going to push this kick this can down the road in 2050 and what their government's really saying is that yeah we want to be there rah 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 it's a wacky idea but we want you as business to come up with the idea uh, that somehow you can you know get rid of 87 percent of your economy which is based on you know power derived from uh, from hydrocarbons and uh, come up with zero fact is it's not just bad math it's bad economics and it's uh, perhaps an example i think of uh, liberals trying to push a utopian dream 
which is impractical and will do significant damage to the Canadian economy, not to mention uh, how it will hurt consumers. Those will be the same consumers who, even before the pandemic, were only $200 away from bankruptcy uh, when it came to the bottom line. What does this mean for Canada's energy industry? Well, it means the natural resource sector is now uh, facing uh, the possibility of, uh, of, of extinction. And I, I'm, I can't be less emphatic than that. Uh, if you're asking uh, industries to do what no other industry in the world is required to do, they'll simply pack up, uh, pull up their stakes and go somewhere else. Unfortunately for Canadians, we usually wind up, as we saw here with the green energy plan uh, that was proposed and implemented 10 years ago, uh, that uh, prices will go up. Consumers will face uh, you know, a, a rather steep incline. And it's, of course, not the only thing the federal government is doing. It's also uh, planning to roll out soon the Canadian the uh, clean fuel standard. That should uh, see a significant increase in the price of pretty much every industrial and commercial and consumer price for fuel over and above the carbon tax. So it's not a good situation, and it really does suggest to me that uh, uh, the federal government may be talking a big deal about 2050 because it's going to obviously uh, miss the 2030 target, the so-called Paris Climate Agreement mm. target, where it said we had to drop emissions in Canada 30% below 2005 levels. Uh, last year, we actually went up a couple percent. So so is this actually that. the real reason for this, Dan, is just shoving it back? Well, I would hope so, but I don't think, I, I think certainly on the progressive left side of the spectrum, there seems to be this belief that somehow we can, uh, you know, get electric vehicles to run without hydrocarbons. That we can, uh, you know, that we can do so efficiently, cheaply, and better technologies will come in the meantime. But what, they're, what Scott, what they're doing here is saying, we don't know how to get there, zero emission. But we're going to ask you as companies to chart out a plan. Maybe you'll come up and stumble across something, and we can get this thing by osmosis. Someone's going to say, well, 30 years is a long way off. 29 years is not a long way off, and of course. When 87% of your economy, think about it, 87% of your economy is based on hydrocarbons. That's to heat, that's to cool, that is to, for transportation, and that's to produce power. It would mean, uh, let me put an illustration for us here in Ontario, you have to build 45 times more nuclear plants to be able to substitute the reduction to net zero. So I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and, and, and for obvious reasons, it may be uh, you know, you, great on paper and, and wonderful utopia, but it, uh, it's practically impossible to achieve. And I think the federal liberals should, uh, should get off their high horse and start to realize, especially given the pandemic, people are more concerned about jobs and the cost of living, all of which are very much threatening. I want to get to the pandemic on this in a sec. That was the original reason for calling you back. But is this being debated or is this being pushed through during a pandemic? Why are we not hearing more about this? Well, you know, interestingly enough, I saw the story come in the Canadian press uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, we had put a blog out on this, a fairly extensive one. So you can just see it there, Canadians for Affordable Energy. Scroll down to uh, the title, which has a picture of Trudeau and Seamus O'Regan, the Minister of uh, Natural Resources. Uh, they called it a moonshot, referring, of course, to, uh, you know, what Kennedy had pledged in 1961 to get to the moon, or by 1961, yes, to get to the moon in, in a decade uh, or less, or by the end of the decade. It's very much the same kind of stuff. And what it really suggests is that the government, if it's serious, is prepared to sacrifice uh, energy production as we know it, which is very clean in Canada, I should point out. Uh, you don't have to go very far to figure that out. Uh, as a kid growing up uh, along Lake Ontario, uh, you could see that uh, the, the, the quality of the lake has improved, the quality of our air has improved. All these things will happen. But if you're going to use a, a, a ball-peen hammer, or in this case a mallet, to try to force companies 
uh, to do something that doesn't exist, it's likely that we are going to wind up in a situation where they're simply going to you know, leave the country, leave the province, leave the Canadian jurisdiction, leave Canadians out of work. Uh, I don't think it's something that necessarily needs to be uh, pushed. I think more Canadians are concerned about the fact that uh, you know, the same Minister of Environment, Wilkinson, has just given municipalities a 20-year free pass on dumping raw sewage into fish habitat and waterways. I think that's the kind of environmentalism that, and stewardship that people would expect. Not an industry that is proving once again on the question of emissions and uh, pollution coming out of tailpipes uh, that they aren't doing a, a bang-up job. I mean, 17 cars today, uh, in 1975, um, you know, you can drive 17 cars today on the amount of emissions that were produced in a car built in 1975. So uh, things are happening, but they don't happen uh, overnight, and they're certainly not going to happen in 30 years, and they're certainly not going to happen with one federal Liberal government trying to, you know, turn the channel off the fact that it's going to miss its 2030 target, and, and, and substantially so. We remember climate change activists when the COVID pandemic initially started uh, saying, look how much we've our consumption has dropped because, of course, we shut down the world. Um, but but COVID-19, how does it figure into all of this? I mean, you know, we're, we're we're watching the prime minister dole out millions, billions every day. We do have to pay for that. How do they balance climate change in a pandemic? Well, they don't. And if they're calling it resilient recovery, just look at the folks that are pushing it and how much money they've made. Same cast of characters. I don't want to besmirch them, but, you know, if they're going to see, you know, uh, Stuart Elgy, Bruce Lurie and General Butts all leading these kind of things. I mean, I have to look at the fact that uh, these guys have done very, very well for themselves financially and otherwise by advocating that, which I think has become very clear to everybody here in the pandemic, certainly the beginning of the pandemic. Michael Moore's movie was uh, just one example. Uh, that, uh, you know, renewables are not the way to go and they can't be produced without hydrocarbons and they can't replace uh, the efficiency of hydrocarbons. What do you do on a day when, you know, you have no sun or you have no wind? How are you going to be able to run your and operate your house, much less your business? So, you know, this is pie in the sky, utopia, fantasy, magic and make-believe land. And I think reality has, is now starting to shake it into, in, into the minds of most people that, look, uh, 20% unemployment potentially, uh, if businesses start to continue to fold, uh, you know, we can't continue to send out checks. We can't afford a trillion dollar debt. Uh, all of these things are starting to, I think, drive home the reality that at the end of all this, what we need to do is to find a yes, I can do approach with respect to our energy sector. How can you guys get back on your feet so you can start producing revenue, create jobs and for goodness sakes, help us pay down this massive debt? Uh, we've talked on this show many times what life will be like post-COVID-19. This has virtually affected everyone around the world. And even when we do get back to normal, that normal will be completely different simply because of the time that has passed. Has COVID-19 changed this discussion in any way? You know, I, I mean, we were all caught up in really fashionable politics, yeah. Kardashian politics pre-COVID-19. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, we've dis- we've realized what is important to us as we've lost all of our freedoms during a pandemic. Uh, can, can activists, can the climate change movement, and again, I'm not denying climate change in any way, yeah. And, yeah. and certainly do believe that we got to shrink our footprint, but c- does this discussion not have to change like every single other discussion post-COVID-19? Good question, but I think the reality here is that it demonstrates that governments and those who've been pushing the green agenda, the radical green agenda, have been proven to be spectacularly wrong. They backed the wrong crisis. This is a real crisis. It has killed people. This is a crisis that requires more, not less, uh, PPEs. Many of those produced by, you got it, fossil fuels and hydrocarbons. I'll, I'll call it what it is, products that are derived from oil. 
So if anything, to combat this, we need more of what we did in the past, not less. And anybody who thinks that, uh, you know, we can produce, uh, you know, magically, we can produce uh, much less prevent the need to create more plastics to fight off, you know, future pandemics is kidding themselves. We need those masks and we need those, uh, you know, we need those shields. We need those sutures. We need those gloves. We need those ventilators. They're all done and they're all made with products that are derived from oil. And so, you know, we live in an era of great prosperity and that prosperity is certainly within reach. It has been, it's certainly challenged with this, dramatically challenged. Double downing, double downing on, uh, you know, going after and saying, well, we need more uh, climate uh, issues and renewables when we know that they are fundamentally built in such a way that they cannot replace what we need in order to get back on our feet, much less continue to prosper and to find those and fund those new technologies is the wrong way to go about it. I don't think the Liberals have a plan federally. I'm shocked. Every liberal government I've been part of, opposition otherwise, had a plan on the economy and certainly a plan on how to, uh, to, to wrest ourselves from this. But we've seen, you know, more reaction from this government and more, uh, you know, uh, hand-wringing and perhaps uh, I would call it for what it is, a lack of good judgment on pretty much every file that they've touched such that I think it's endangered uh, the prosperity in this country and certainly put uh, Canada back several months in terms of trying to dig its way out of this massive recession that many of us haven't quite felt yet, but are going to see that uh, as we head towards fall. Uh, obviously, we have seen a lot of divisive politics uh, pre-COVID-19. Uh, we've seen a lot of various parties, leadership, uh, governments on various levels unite, come together, a common cause. Again, less fashionable politics and, and what really matters. Can you see this discussion changing because... We're listening less to the extremes on both ends of this argument. Can you see us uniting here? I, I can, and I think it's happened, certainly between the provinces and the federal government. Uh, and the provinces led, I think, in many respects, uh, by the rather uh, you know, uh, strength of, of, of the Ford government. I'm surprised. Uh, he went into this, as uh, my son came out saying, uh, he came in, uh, no one liked him, he came out of this uh, thing, he's become a, a you know, a, a COVID uh, a warrior. He's, he's, he's turned the minds of people around by trying to engage and try to be destructive and pragmatic. What undermines this, though, Scott, is when you see examples where the uh, Prime Minister himself uh, appears to have been caught, not just in an ethics violation, but in something that I think is very unsavory, and that's to look and reward and uh, look after his own and uh, potentially uh, create a scandal far greater than anything I've seen, certainly bigger than the uh, uh, sponsorship scandal, where every one of us knew that there was no players that were politically elected that were involved with this. Uh, they may have been bumblers, but in this case, you have a prime minister and his finance minister, and goodness knows who else, involved in what I think is going to be a, a, you know, a, an enlarged uh, group of individuals who are uh, extremely uh, going to be coming under severe and, and significant scrutiny, such that I think it's going to lose the confidence of Canadians. And so while I think everyone has done a really good job at getting things done, I think, uh, unfortunately for the Trudeau government, uh, what good they've done has been completely erased by uh, this really serious lack of judgment. And that really is something that uh, falls at the, uh, the feet of the Prime Minister, not any of his caucus or his cabinet or his party. Uh, obviously, uh, since you are a Liberal MP and, and you are bringing this up, this is the third time a, a, an ethics violation has been brought uh, before the Prime Minister. Um, your thoughts? Does he just not understand the rules? It, it just seems that he he's playing to a, a different elite audience. 
Yeah, no, I've said it before, he's a lightweight. And I've, uh, I suspect that he probably doesn't care, doesn't have to care. Um, uh, there is, uh, you know, in, in many respects, uh, a very unserious mind, to use Rex Murphy's analogy, but it's one I think that is certainly driven home here. Uh, he doesn't have the right stuff. And, you know, although he certainly appeals to a constituency, um, that constituency has voted for him very massively and heavily in the past and may very well in the future, given that uh, we're all receiving checks. But when it comes down to it, uh, one has to be responsible, judicious, and careful in the way in which they govern. Uh, Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, um, you know, uh, Michael Ignatieff, uh, Stéphane Dion could be accused of a lot of things, but one of them was never to be involved in that kind of scandalous uh, business. And it's likely to get a lot worse. Uh, the PM knows he's in trouble. That's why he had to fess up. But where there's smoke, there's fire. The opposition sees that uh, there's a weakness here. It's going to forestall a federal election, which everyone expected to be called in September. Uh, and it's now likely to put, uh, you know, the, all the spotlight on, on Justin Trudeau, his ability to survive this. At the end of all this, I don't expect the caucus is going to force him out. Their hand chosen to, to be, you know, to be, to, to defend him. Uh, I think at the end of all this, he's going to realize that, you know, the jig is up. It's, it's time for him to move on. Uh, you know, three ties, three strikes are out. And I think for many Canadians in difficult times, having somebody exercising such poor, rash judgment is certainly not uh, fit to be the leader of the country. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP, Canadians for Affordable Energy, talking about everything from uh, pipelines to prime ministers. Uh, Dan, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.